morning, Petaluma. This is Talking with Rabbi Ted on KPCA LP, Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM, streaming live at kpca.fm. I'm Rabbi Ted Feldman, the rabbi of the Israel Jewish Center here in Petaluma and chair of the Petaluma Community Relations Council. It's great to have our listeners back this morning. And we have two special guests in our studio during our second segment today. We'll be meeting Catherine Reinhardt, who is a Sonoma County historian, and talking a little bit about the uh, available resources of the history of Sonoma. But in our first segment today, we have Father Bill Donahue, uh, the priest at St. Vincent de Paul Catholic Church here in Petaluma. So welcome to our studio. Well, thanks, Ted. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for taking uh, time. I think there's a little holiday coming up uh, next week. Oh, yes. Big holiday. Oh, a big holiday. <laughs> that's right. It is a big holiday. It is a big holiday. Well, thank you for taking the time because I know this is a uh, busy season for you. So it's great to have you here. Happy to do it. Thank you. So before we get into the Christmas and some of the stuff we're going to talk about uh, today, I wanted to find a little bit about you. Uh, you came to the church about a year ago? Yes, about a year and a half. A year and a um, half already. Mm -hmm. After retiring uh, priest, Father Father Lombardi, Lombardi had right. been there for, I think, 24 years. Yes, yes. Yeah, what's... Um, how did you get into this priest business? Well, it's a good question. Um, I went through, actually, as um, I went through St. Vincent schools, both the grade school and the high school. Oh, you grew up here. Many right? grew up here. Right. Grew up here right here in Petaluma, and um, I was well familiar with not only the schools but the community. And and um, the priests I knew that I was growing up, I thought were you know decent guys, and it's something uh, at least in my day was. Uh, was something that I think probably a number of Catholic young men would consider something that they'd be willing to consider. Mm. And I, at different times, I, I went off to to college and graduate school, and after that I began to think about it and, and uh, eventually thought I would give it a try and uh, went into theology studies at, uh, at the seminary, St. Patrick's Seminary in Menlo Park. And ev after, every, after every spring I came back in the fall, and there you have it. And here you are. And here I am. And here you are. Yeah. So we, you would be using the word you were called to the priesthood. Would you use that term personally? Um, that's that's a term. Uh, felt, we would say you know received a vocation or felt a vocation, uh -huh. a discerned a vocation, and it's a process that's not merely a personal one, but in some ways you don't really have your vocation is ratified when the community and, and, and ultimately the bishop call you in the form of ordination. Mm, okay. And there are, there are several steps along the way, on the way to ordination, when, that's when you make your full-time and, and, and full commitment. But there are what they call the minor ministries that come before that of reader and acolyte and candidate and and then diaconate being a deacon and, and priest. So you have, if you will, several stages at which to make a decision to move on to the next stage. So it's a... It's a pretty heavily discerned process, um, which is evaluated by a, um, a faculty of priests and lay people uh, at regular intervals. So it's it's probably about as uh, as discerned, shall we say, as any human decision can be, not on the part just of the candidate, which would be in this case me, but also on the part of people who knew me well and saw my work and saw my capacities, and then uh, and then chose to call me to ministerial priesthood. So the calling comes 
kind of at the end of the process, right? Is it right before? Is that what you're saying in this? The official part of it, the part yeah. that the part that's that, if you will, is well permanent. Uh-huh. Um, that that comes. You commit. Both sides commit themselves to that uh, toward the end of a fairly long process. How long is that process? Uh, it depends on. Um, what previous schooling you had, you need to have uh, before you go to theology, which is a four or five year course, which will include a year of of pa- pastoral practice, uh, in a, usually in a parish. Mine was in a hospital, but um, it's 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 probably let's put it this way: it'd be nine years out of high school at the least. Mm, okay. At the least, okay. and those those years of college, uh, which in the old days uh, would often take place at a seminary college uh, would need to include a good deal of philosophy, mm-hmm. which is not heavily studied nowadays. And even fellows who have very strong uh, undergraduate degrees from, uh, you know, from very good schools often need to take a year or so to, to do a number of, of philosophy courses because that's, if you will, the foundation for the theology that follows. And they need to have that, as I did, and um, and as I said, it's not something which is which is as often studied as it used to be. So uh, that may add another year into it. So it's a fairly long process. Yeah, actually, uh, mine was ten years after co- uh, high school. Mm-hmm. Too, so that's uh, that is the process. That is the process. So um, must feel pretty special. You grew up in this community, and now coming back to serve as a priest of a large. How large is your parish, by the way? It's hard to know. Um, we have about 1,500 people that come to Mass on Sunday. Uh-huh. So we have a lot of people um, who come who are not registered. We have other people who are registered who uh, we don't see very often. And we have a large Hispanic community as well. And so, we, you know, we have a good, we have a good group of people. Yeah, it's large. So, what, again, what does it feel like being in your home community and connecting back with where you grew up? In many ways, it does. Um, I really haven't lived in Petaluma full-time for about 40 years. Whoa. I had I had a one year or so uh, in 1990 where I came and lived in the parish where I worked in in, in Santa Rosa, but um, a lot of a lot of families are still here that I know very well. Um, my parents both taught in the public system here, so a lot of people uh, know me through my parents or vice versa. I would know them through my parents, and um, it's been a nice thing. There's there's it's been a nice, if you will, mix of the of the familiar and the new. So we're leading now into this uh, Christmas holiday, mm-hmm. and um, what's it like for you? Before we talk about some of the broader, bigger issues, what's it like for a priest to be preparing for for Christmas and the pressures and all of that? Do you, do you feel something, uh, a lot of pressure from your community? or what's I, it like? I really don't feel a lot of pressure, either the... Closest analogy I can think of, and I've been doing this for a number of years now, 32 years, but um, it's it's kind of like the equestrian events in in, in the uh, in the Olympics where you know you mount this horse, you've been training for years and years and years, and you you mount this horse and you're heading down the track and you're getting ready to hop over the hedge. Um, if you've done the training properly, if you've done the preparation properly, you simply ride the horse and let the horse carry you over. Oh, so you could take a Gallup poll while you're on it. <laughs> very good. That's very great. good. Very good. Okay. No, <laughs> no, it's it, it's the preparation. The preparation because we start preparing for Advent back in September, mm-hmm. 
So the preparation is in place, which, you know, it usually is, and there's always a few last-minute things you need to take care of. But uh, if the preparation is in place, um, when the time comes, you simply do what you need to do, and it's um, and it's 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 very nice. The liturgies are pretty much uh, kind of planned out, so I have a, the, I have a lot of time. Really, the the nice part about it is I have a lot of time uh, to meet parishioners uh, after masses. Uh, sometimes kids that have come home from college and people who are together for the holidays. Other people I miss because they're leaving. They're leaving town to be with family elsewhere, so it's a time of a lot of kind of intense human interaction and uh, a lot of activity. And then, as soon as Christmas Day comes, um, then you have a few, usually, uh, if it's a few days until New Year's, you have a few days when people are kind of doing family things where it's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit quieter. Christmas is, I think of it this way: uh, the Christmas is uh, is a night feast, and Easter is a morning feast. Most of the people that go to services that go to mass on on Christmas go on Christmas Eve rather than Christmas Day. And Easter, of course, people most people go in the morning. So that's that's I think that's the way I kind of think of it, and um, and that's the way it usually that's the way it usually um, plays out. The thing that's a little bit different at Christmas is that, um, of course, Easter is always on a Sunday, whereas Christmas can fall any day of the week depending upon the year. So here it's on Tuesday, so we have uh, pretty much four days of nonstop liturgies between the um, the vigil. Uh, Saturday before the fourth Sunday of Advent, and then we have Christmas Eve, which is the following day, and then we have Christmas Day. So we have four solid days of of liturgical activity. So it's a bit of a workout, but it's it's great to see the folks. It is great to see the folks, and yeah, I, I assume that for you it's a um, uh, it's an important spiritual time for your community, in spite of the commercial. Uh, overlay of Christmas mm-hmm. in American culture, which has taken, from my perspective as an outsider to it, mm-hmm. taken away the spiritual teachings that may come uh, from this religious celebration, from this religious celebration. Um, what? Uh, so could you talk a little bit about what Advent is? What do you mean by Advent? Absolutely. Advent um, means, thank you, means a coming or an approach, an arrival, mm-hmm. and we... Um, you know, in the, in the Catholic tradition and a lot of others besides, uh, we take roughly four weeks before Christmas um, as a time of preparation, and it's a penitential season as well. So uh, a time that's intended to be a time of, if you will, noble simplicity, where we kind of clear the decks and, um, and get ready for Christmas. Of course, what happens, I think, in the world around us is that on Christmas now, it used to be that Christmas didn't begin until the Friday after Thanksgiving, as people. But now it's even. I, I think the Easter candy is going to be in the, in the stores next week. Um, <laughs> Probably. <laughs> but it, now it's kind of creeping backwards. But uh, we don't really officially celebrate Christmas until the 25th mm-hmm. or the 24th, in the, the night before right. Christmas right. Eve. Uh, the 12 days of Christmas they come after Christmas, mm-hmm. the, the days between Christmas and the Epiphany, which is normally January the 6th. So Advent is a, is a time of preparation, and you know we, we as, um, um, for want of a better way of putting it, modern people, um, we're not in some ways really good at preparation. We're not good at waiting. We're not good at longing, of of allowing ourselves to really deeply feel a need before it's satisfied. 
Mm-hmm. And um, and this is a time of, of recognizing our need for God, recognizing our need, I think, also to, to clear away the non-essentials and to focus on what's most important in life. And that's ideally what Advent should be. And, um, and I think it produces great spiritual fruit in the people uh, who make an effort to observe it in one way or another. Um, and sometimes it's a thwart to the, the influences of the world around us. How would it be observed? Um, more personal confessionals during a uh, penitential season and group, yes. group confessionals? More liturgy? What, how is it observed? Well, we, we observe it. I mean, there's, there's, I think, some powerful symbolic things that are pretty widely shared. We have the Advent wreath, um, and we spent, had a couple of sessions in the parish, both for, uh, for our school kids and also for adults, to make Advent wreaths. You know, it's kind of a little bit of everything. We had a reconciliation service, which is uh, a service that includes individual confessions, and that was on the first Tuesday of Advent. We do the, tend to do that fairly early on. A lot of it happens within families. People have their Advent calendars. And each day you open up one of the little doors and it has some, some verse, some task, some, some little thing for the day that people can do or reflect on. Um, in the parish we have what we call, and I think a lot of communities do this, um, we, call, we call giving trees. Mm-hmm. We have these big Christmas trees inside. We don't call them Christmas trees yet because it's not Christmas, but these big trees inside the church. We have all these tags uh, with different gifts that are specified that people can take off the trees and buy these gifts. Mm. I mean, so many of us now are at the stage of life where um, we don't we don't really want to be acquiring any more things. We really want to be start offloading the things we have, and um, we all know people who are very very difficult to buy for. But these are people; um, these represent people and families who are not difficult to buy for at all because it's the one or two gifts that um, our parish families that can provide that will make their Christmases. And so we do a good deal of that as well. And they've been, they, were, they have been pouring in. Mm. And uh, we distribute those. And, um, and then this last Tuesday, two days ago, we have, and we do this every year, what we call Remembrance Service, where because the holidays are especially difficult for people who, who miss loved ones, especially if they've, if they've, if they've passed on during the holidays or during the previous year or two. So we, we get together and have some beautiful music and have these porcelain angels that people can decorate with the names of the loved ones and they hang those on our trees. Mm-hmm. We kind of get together with for a moment of, of appreciation and, and gratitude and reflection. Um, and it's not even a specifically Catholic and we invite everybody. So they have to have that time uh, before Christmas so people can um, make their loved ones present in a, in a positive way without it being a cloud over their Christmas celebrations. Um, so that's, those are a few things that we do. Yeah, that's interesting because before our uh, observance of Rosh Hashanah, our mm-hmm. new year in September, mm-hmm. we have a four-week period, a month on the Jewish calendar of preparation, of repentance, and of checking in with oneself, with one's family, with one's community, apologizing, the reestablishing relationships, reconnecting, and those kinds of things. So it's an interesting structure leading up to the big holidays, such as you're doing with Advent and, and Christmas coming. Well, that's interesting that, it's interesting that, it's, that, that those two periods of time are fairly similar in length. Yes, yes. It's, 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 um, you know, it's, it's short enough that it can create some excitement and some sense of immediacy and urgency. Right. Um, but not um, so short that it can be, if you will, kind of brushed off quickly. It's a, enough time 
if people want to go deep to do that. So what, what would you uh, uh, summarize uh, for our listeners as the main spiritual message of Christmas itself, of getting this holiday celebrating the birth of Jesus? Mm-hmm. What message is there in that? Um, I think there's, well, um, that God has visited this planet as one like ourselves in a personal intervention. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that um, uh, in, in, in a world in which I think uh, many of us think that we live in a post-truth and also a fake news world, um, I think we believe that uh, that truth is, is not a thing, it's not a concept, it's not a an abstract notion, but in fact, truth is a person. It is Jesus himself who's come among us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, uh, I remember I did, many years ago, I did a, a Passover Seder mm-hmm. in the Catholic Church oh. a long time ago. I've done one recently in our community, but uh, and one of the people asked me, well, how can you get forgiveness without Jesus? Right? Mm-hmm. How can you seek forgiveness from God? And, you know, from my point of view, and my truth is that, uh, you know, for us, it's a direct connection with God. Sure. Right? And so I explained that to her. She said, well, that doesn't make sense, because in her mind, that, that's what the church had taught. That was part of the teachings. I respected, of course, very mm-hmm. much. So that little notion of um, the intermediary, uh, could you talk, could you address that, what that's like, and how the people, is it a powerful piece for the people and for your community, and how does it manifest itself in, in people's lives? Well, it's, um, I would begin by saying that, um, you know, that for, I think that forgiveness is a divine gift. We can, I think we can make ourselves as receptive to it as we can be, and I think that we can try by our own human resources but I think if I think that forgiveness is ultimately a divine gift, mm-hmm. and the mechanisms by which it takes place, I think, are, are difficult for us to understand it because it, of, it, of itself, it is, I think, is essentially mysterious. So um, now we would certainly believe that that Jesus um, is not only the model but means of forgiveness um, in in just in terms of his own um, death and resurrection. Um, and the whole, I think, the whole the whole notion uh, of substitutional suffering it depends upon a spiritual economy in, in which our um, our unity as God's as as God's children that it runs far deeper than our individuality. And can you help me with that again? Well, I, you know, the whole the, the whole notion of maybe maybe to put it in another language, the whole notion of forgiveness would depend upon. Uh, a, a deep conviction that the things which bring us together as individual peoples are far more powerful and far deeper than the things that that, that tend to drive us apart. Okay. okay. Maybe that's a better way of putting it. Yeah. Now I got it. It's, it's a way... <laughs> don't may, may need to make things more complicated than they are. But um, I think that's that's what it is. And whatever, I think whatever helps... And we see as Jesus is playing an essential role in that, not only as an example, but also the means of that. But however... Um, however, person a person receives that divine gift by whatever means, you know, it's 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 all to the good, and, and the one doesn't exclude the other. Yeah, and um, I know that the 
Christmas in the in the Catholic Church. It's, uh, it's called the Catholic Church is often referred to as High Church, mm-hmm. along with the Episcopal Church of England, etc. Mm-hmm. Is that based on a certain theology or on the level of ritual and formatting of uh, what happens when people come into church? What do those two terms, High Church, Low Church, mean? The terms that I think that we tend to use a little bit less now than we used to, uh-huh. um, and I, I can't speak for the Episcopalians, um, the ones, uh, Episcopalians, I think that tend to be in our area, tend to be a little bit higher church, whereas the Episcopal Church, for example, in the South, tends to be much, a much if you will, have much more a simple form of um, worship, but I shouldn't be speaking, I don't need to speak right. to that because it's not my area of, uh, it's not my area of familiarity. Uh, even within the Catholic Church, you know, even in different parishes, you have different different levels, if you will, of of complexity of liturgical services, and they can happen even within a given Sunday. Um, for example, we have um, at our place we have four masses on Sunday, uh, five, actually six, if you want to include the anticipated masses on on Saturday, which is. Basically, it's, it's 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 Sunday liturgically speaking, mm-hmm. and we have um, what we call it pretty close to a misa simplex, a simple mass. Um, we have uh, kind of uh, more simpler music, and uh, and at the at the earliest mass on Sunday morning, whereas at the ten thirty we have the full use of the organ and cantors and all of that, and that would be considered more of a high mass. In the old days, it meant more in terms of how many ministries you had, deacons and subdeacons, about numbers of candles you lit, that kind of thing. A lot of those distinctions are not as as commonly uh, maintained as they used to be because it's basically the same liturgy. Is there is there a, a place for each particular leader uh, to innovate in the ritual, or is it a dictated ritual in your church? It's pretty in 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 our. I'm the only one that offers, generally speaking, that offers masses in English. Okay. And I do in Spanish sometimes as well. And I adapt myself to, if you will, to the custom of the particular mass. They're not probably that different, but there's a different, if, there, if you will, there's a different accent to each one. Um, and some other parishes may do things a little bit more kind of rigidly traditionally. I would consider uh, St. Vincent's um, fairly middle of the road to slightly traditional with regard to with regard to liturgical observance. And there's not a lot of room for uh, there's not a lot of room for innovation. It's designed it's designed to be pretty strictly to be pretty strictly uh, conducted um, so that uh, the mass is with the exception of a different different language. And this was this has always been the strength of the Catholic liturgy, especially when it was in, in Latin. The mass will be the same whether it's whether it's in Buenos Aires, Madagascar, Tokyo, or St. Louis, uh, and equally valid whether the priest is a genius or a fool. Mm. Um, because they, he's doing the ritual. He's yes, performing he's, the ritual. He's, he's doing what what the church intends. What the church intends, which is not strictly speaking, really celebrating an individual his own mass, but it is it is a participation in the in the once and for all times eternal sacrifice of Jesus, which takes place in the mass, and that that is a connection to that one sacrifice. It's not a, it's not an endless repetition of it with each mass. It's if you will, it's a logging on to that one eternal sacrifice of Jesus two thousand years ago. 
Yeah, so I'm thinking as you're describing the role of the priest mm-hmm. and um, that uh, you know, in the prophet Amos we have in Amos we mm-hmm. have the conflict between the priest and the prophet mm-hmm. and the role of the priestly class in the time of Amos which was to perform the rituals mm-hmm. and Amos uh, Amos uh, I'll mm-hmm. use Amos as the English sure. pronunciation mm-hmm. Amos is the Hebrew um, was the social reformer trying to help the people uh, see the light of how they were treating each other and how they were treating the vulnerable. So in the church, what is, what is the priestly, what is the prophetic role of the priest in the church? Is there a prophetic role? Or is it totally uh, ritual? Uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good question, to which I think there's a longer-term answer. I think priests, uh, even going back to Old Testament times, they, they, they are, by nature, they are more institutional figures. Mm-hmm. Whereas prophets are outliers, right? And um, and that's and I think the prophets, uh, prophets, no matter whether it's in the, in, in the Old Testament or more recently, uh, that they were from among the people of God that they were they were never mass produced, mm-hmm. and they they seem to come from nowhere, mm-hmm. and they're they're in some ways they are outside they are outside of the institution. Uh, if you're not, not just crying into the wilderness, kind of like John the Baptist, but um, also speaking to um, the, if you, the institutional life of the, of the ministerial priesthood. Mm-hmm. There was, um, oh, some, some time ago, in fact, it was, it was a seminary somewhere, somewhere in the Midwest that uh, at a time when, when uh, people were getting very much into this whole, this whole notion of prophetic witness in the 1960s, is in all in all the Old Testament there were maybe fifteen prophets, and now seminaries were 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 creating them at the, at the rate of thirty a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> not likely, right? Not likely. Um, but it's it's a it's a different it's a different uh, it's a different kind of role. But I think that certainly priests have a, a role in in speaking, though it's not, maybe not their full time vocation, speaking prophetic words at the proper time. Uh, but I think the proper I think a key thing is the proper time, and um, uh, and doing that, doing that when 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 necessary with a great deal of conviction. Well, I think that's uh, from my perspective, it's important for all of us. You know, I have priestly responsibilities, mm-hmm. ritual responsibilities yes. too. But in order to make our traditions relevant to our communities, we have to be able to speak to. Uh, to what's happening in our world and our role in hopefully making that better world. Well, I want to thank you so much for being with us on uh, this Thursday morning before Christmas. Happy to do it. And wishing you and your community a Merry Christmas. I hope uh, it reaches inside of your hearts. You are listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted, Segment 1. We'll see you in a few minutes.
Thank you. How are you? Welcome back to the second segment of Talking with Rabbi Ted. You're listening to KPCALP, Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM, online at kpca.fm. Welcome back to the second segment today. And uh, in our studio is our guest, Catherine Reinhardt, Sonoma County Library historian. It's great to have you here today. Thank you. Good. It's, uh, we were just talking about the weather, which is a good conversation starter in this gloomy day, so we'll try to liven it up with history. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> that livens you up, right? It certainly does. You do like history. I love history. Yes. How long have you been uh, doing this uh, library here? How long well, I've been with the Sonoma County History and Genealogy Library for the past 16 years. Mm-hmm. I started out um, in a part-time position as a library associate. And then four years ago, three years ago, became the manager of the Sonoma County History and Genealogy Library and the county archives full-time. Yeah, and of course I met you at the Petaluma Historical Museum uh, X amount of years ago when you were volunteering and doing some historical work uh, locally for us. Yes, I was a a volunteer at the museum for several years and served on the board of directors and uh, was president at one point in time. So how did you get into the history business? That's my question. I asked the priest how to get into the priest business. So I can ask you uh, how you got into the history business. What happened in your life where that made you focus on this part of existence? Well, I've always loved history, and I think that was because of my father's um, love of history as well. Sort of passed it down. So when it was time for me to go to college and needed to pick a major, I was fortunate enough to, to pick one in which I enjoyed the subject matter. So I received my BA and my MA in history from Sonoma State. And it was while at, at Sonoma State that I really got involved with local history. I did a thesis project, which was a historic resources survey, and I looked at Pengrove. And it's funny, the survey is called the West Pengrove Historic Resources Survey, and probably most people don't think of Pengrove as being large enough to have Yes, or north or south. But what I found is that a fair amount had been written about the main street there, and but not so much on the surrounding uh, rural farms and, and homes there. So... The first thing I did is I contacted the Sonoma County um, Landmarks Commission about perhaps getting an internship with them. And they said, you know, back in the 70s, we tried to survey all of um, Sonoma County unincorporated and survey being documented historic resources throughout the county and in determining whether they were landmarks or whatnot from a planning perspective. 
But an area that was uh, overlooked was the pen one of many areas overlooked was Pengrove. And at that time, my uh, mom and stepdad were living in Pengrove. And so I said, well, sounds good to me, not really knowing what I was getting myself into. Um, maybe back up a little bit. A while in college, I got an internship with the National Trust for Historic Preservation in Washington, D.C. for a summer. And it was there that my eyes were open to the fact that you can study history, and there were different career paths to follow besides perhaps what people most commonly think of as teaching. Because what I found out through the National Trust for Historic Preservation is we can learn from our surroundings, document the history of our built environment. And so that got me fired up to come back to Sonoma County and say, what can I do locally? So that's when I contacted the Landmarks Commission. So I'm like, sure, I can go out and document Pengrove and realize it was quite an undertaking. Yeah. And what did you, did you discover anything amazing? Yeah, one, I had to narrow my scope. Um, uh -huh. And I, because it was a, such a large endeavor, I thought, well, this needs to be a thesis project. What I discovered, so what I was doing was um, documenting the different properties, looking at the history of ownership and occupancy, the buildings themselves, when were they constructed, and how the area in general developed over time. So I looked at different time frames and different things that were going on that would affect the way the land was developed. And that had a lot to do in Pengrove and, and most of Sonoma County with agriculture. And starting with growing more for subsistence purposes, large, large uh, properties, large farms and ranches. And then as we get into the poultry boom, then it becomes quite popular to purchase a piece of land and establish a chicken ranch. So then in terms of the built environment, you get all these different types of structures popping up on the landscape. And then it becomes more, less about subsistence farming and more about providing products for a broader uh, population. And uh, I documented a total of 75 properties. Wow. And I learned a lot about vernacular architecture. One thing I, well, there's lots that I loved, but I, it seems crazy now. I mean, so this is back in the 1990s. I just walk around, knock on people's doors, and what folks were so welcoming. You know, I can't tell you how many kitchen tables I sat down at and was, people had their story to tell, and I was there to listen. And that, that was really great. What I found kind of... Uh, as a contrast, and so a lot of these folks had lived in the area for generations. Um, and maybe they'd started out with a bigger pro piece of property, but then as time went on and the economy changed, then they would subdivide their property, and so now they have their children or grandchildren on smaller pieces of land. But it was the newer folks the, uh, that when I would knock on their doors, very reticent. It's like, no, I don't want to talk to you. Yeah, oh, our old community, people settled somewhere having roots, it makes a difference mm -hmm. in accessibility. You're absolutely right. That's, mm -hmm. a, that's part, of our, uh, part of our world. One of the key phrases uh, that you used that I think was really very important is that they had a story to tell because people love to tell their stories in general. They do. They want to know that their story makes a difference in the world. 
So that leads me to the question of why do you think it's important for people to study history? To, why is this information important about how that land developed and you know who owned this house across the street from the studios a hundred years ago? What 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 do we get from that? Because if you took a survey of high school students, would history be among the top pieces of their? Of course, I hope so, but yeah, probably so not. So, so what, do, what do you think there is about history? That well, I mean, there's a you know catchphrase: you don't know where you're going if you don't know where you've been. But I think it's more about um, understanding the individual history, your own individual history as well as the community in which you live, really provides a grounding, a sense of context, a sense of place in the community at large. Uh, otherwise, you're kind of just floating adrift um, and not maybe feeling quite as connected. You know, as more as we learn about the past and the types of things that were going on makes us better able to understand different cultures, why things are the way they are today, which can... Um, provide understanding, alleviate anxiety. I was just, um, no, this isn't, this isn't a promotion piece. <laughs> no, and, you, and people can't see the book you're showing me, so it's okay. So you know who really talks about this subject beautifully it are John Sheehy and uh, Scott Hess, who just came out with a, a wonderful book called On a River Winding Home, Stars, Stories and Visions of the Petaluma River Shed. And really talking about, because of what Scott's his, uh, current photos, he ties to the past. It brings it all together for people to see how knowing what happened before you really has an impact on what's, what you are today, what your community is today, and where things are going in the future. So it was not a concise quote. So. <laughs> it's okay. But what, what you're really, you're, you're stimulating in my mind this uh, thought about how important rootedness is for people in this world. And America has become, over the generations, a very mobile society. There's some statistics about how often people move and move distances, not just uh, down the street or across town. Mm -hmm. And so that lack of rootedness uh, is, uh, really contributes to some of the disconnect that we have in our world today, where Social media becomes a way for people to connect with each other because they're not in connection with neighbors and with community in the same way as we used to be. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, that that notion of history, uh, I know for me, I moved to Petaluma 14 uh, years ago, 12 years ago, okay, whatever, back then, and uh, I'm fascinated by the history because I've adopted this history as mine mm -hmm. because I live here. And that makes it an important piece of who I am by being part of this community. So I think that's a piece of what you're uh, alluding to in, yes. this, in this discussion about. And here you are, having grown up in Sonoma County. No, no I didn't. didn't. So this kind of, um, maybe. So one thing people are often surprised to hear, uh, especially after I, I wrote a book on the history and architecture in Petaluma, they were shocked to find that I didn't grow up here. <laughs> I grew up in uh, Fairfax and San Anselmo and later Terra Linda. And it wasn't until I just I did I went to college at the SRJC, which I can't say enough good things about. Started there in 1985. 
And that's when I became a Sonoma County resident and really took on the, the history. And I think, you know, as we're talking, I realized growing up we moved a lot. And granted, I was a child, but I was constantly starting over with a new school. And so now I think, you know, when I went to the, the junior college, I had a great apartment in, in the J.C. neighborhood that I ended up living in for, I don't know, 10 years. Because <laughs> 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 it's like once I found my, my home, I wanted to stay. So it wasn't until I started working for, well, one, while going to college <clears throat> at Sonoma State, I was spending a lot of time at the museum, Petaluma Museum and the Petaluma Library doing research. And that, in connection with this National Trust internship, I'm looking around Petaluma and going, wow, this, the history is like hitting me in the face because we've got these great historic buildings that are still standing, yes. not a replica. Uh, we've got the river, we've got the act, we've got everything right there for us to, to take in. And um, I caught the bug. You caught the history bug. Yes. I know, that's, that's how it happens. Yeah, I, I mean, I really think you're um, offering our listeners a very profound message because a good portion of our increased population here in Petaluma, Sonoma County, are people who have moved here from elsewhere. And there's such a value in connecting to the past of this community in order for their present to be meaningful for them. And so studying these books about the river, about the buildings in town, the people who made a difference really adds to our own community existence. It gives us something in common with which we can connect to each other. So I, I do appreciate that. So tell me, so back to your current position mm -hmm. in the Sonoma library system mm -hmm. and the history. So what is this genealogy department like and what kind of resources? I think one of the questions I asked you when we were uh, meeting was to, you know, what's the oldest piece of evidence of history in our community do you have mm -hmm. available? So okay. tell, tell us a little bit about that. Okay, well, the Sonoma County History and Genealogy Library is one of four special collections within the Sonoma County Library System which many people may not realize um, is made up of 14 branches. It's not just the Petaluma Library here on Fairgrounds Drive. Um, and then within those libraries, there's a special collection. So our, our collection is geographically next to the Santa Rosa Central Branch on 3rd and E Street. And we have, um, so yes, we have local history and genealogy. And one of the misconception is people hear Sonoma County history and genealogy and they think, oh, well, my ancestors didn't have anything to do with Sonoma County, so I shouldn't bother to go there. And that's actually not true. We have materials for people to research um, internationally their roots. And so we have a, we've, the collection got started in 1967 when the new Santa Rosa Library was built. And it was just, it was called the Sonoma County Room. And it was about twice the size of the studio. And then by the 90s, it, popularity had grown and collection had increased. So we moved into another space, a separate building that we shared with the adult literacy program. Have you discovered that there's no short answers with me? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's okay. That's all right. We're doing fine. We're laugh. doing fine. <laughs> um, so we moved in there, and that, that was about 3,000 square feet. And then most recently, we did a, a what they call, that's a mini remodel. 
And during that process, the uh, adult literacy uh, program was able to stay in the central library. Mm -hmm. And we are now taking over almost a little over a 5,000 square foot footprint. So you're, you're, but you're not like a museum. You're not collecting objects. You're collecting no. written materials. No, very right? good distinction. So we have the Sonoma County Museum, who's more in the three-dimensional right. items, and then we have the documents that support those materials. So there's a lot of crossover in that we can provide the research that helps inform um, exhibits and such. So you asked about the oldest document. Well. So there's a history and genealogy library, which is in downtown Santa Rosa. But another function I have is managing the county archive, which it, with others, with other staff members. It's a 3,800-square-foot warehouse out off of Highway 12 at the base of Hood Mountain. And the oldest document, so those are county, primarily county-generated documents. And 1840s is probably the earliest record we have in fact, a few years ago for um, Valentine's Day, <laughs> the Press Democrats did a story. They wanted, like, the oldest marriage that ever occurred in the county. And we actually found the marriage certificate, which was crazy because we were in a county in the 1840s. Uh -huh. um, so some really rare treasures. Yeah, those are treasures. Those are treasures. Yeah, actually, um, my community here in Petaluma, in my office, I have... Uh, written minutes from 1864. Oh so yeah, I have the book of minutes. It probably at some point should go into some official location. You read uh, my here. mind. Yeah, so it probably should go there at some point. But um, so, the so what kind of programs are you, are you offering in the community? What kinds of things are available for the consumer out here mm -hmm. to be able to come in and participate in some way? Okay. Um, well, first I'll need to mention the other special collections. We have okay. our own Petaluma History Room here at the Petaluma Library. That's often confusing because at the former library, you have the historical museum and library. Yes. <laughs> but we all work together, and they, uh, the collections are not duplicated. The other special collection we have is the wine library that's in the Healdsburg branch. And no, they don't do a lot of wine tasting. <laughs> I was just going to ask that, you know. We have a lot of proof text, though. I yes, and we have a lot of... Um, wineries coming in to research the history of their their brand and so forth. Mm -hmm. And then there's also the, um, so the archive then is the fourth. So what kind of programs do we have? Well, we just hosted Gayla Barron. Um, gosh, it was just last Saturday, speaking about her new, her new book uh, about Fountain Grove, the history of the Fountain Grove, and that was at the Rincon Valley Library. The one thing we don't have is a space to have uh, host programs. So those are often at other branches, so we get to spread our, mm -hmm. our wealth. Um, we're uh, just now, because of the passage of Measure Y, which increased the sales tax in Sonoma County by an eighth of a cent, with the purpose of that revenue going specifically to the libraries, the library, Sonoma County Library, and so that's enabled us to expand hours and hire staff. Well, with us, we have more staff and one of the great things we're now just finally able to do is to go out to schools and work with teachers on teaching with primary resources, um, you know, the tips and tricks that many of them are online because it's, you know, that's always the draw, but also the value of the physical items and the understanding that not everything is digitized. And then we've got um, something kind of interesting so in the 21st century, a lot of 
content, of course, is generated on the web, and there is no physical item. So we're, one of our librarians um, is doing a web archiving project. And then the other thing we do, we go out, we give talks to whoever wants to hear us <laughs> about whether it be how to do your how to do genealogy, you know, either from beginning to advance. I speak to Rotary clubs. Um, yeah, we, we're um, with the March with the National Women's History uh, Month coming up. We'll have a speaker talking about the history of suffrage in Sonoma County and some of the main players, and that's in anticipation of the 2020 um, centennial for women's suffrage. So, um, and a then, lot going on. yeah, a lot going on. <laughs> there is a lot going on. So, National History Day, you were telling yes. me about that. So, uh, I understand that uh, the title is a misnomer, that National History Day is not a day. Right. Uh, okay. I think the day is when the, the culmination of all the work okay. and the national winner is okay. selected. That's what I sorted out. It's, so, it's a national program, but we have a, a local effort here in Sonoma County that's coordinated by a woman named Whitney Olson. And they, so in September, they have a theme every year. And at the beginning of the school year, that theme is announced. And not every, not every school participates, but it's at all levels, elementary, junior high, and high school. And then they have to do, they, they pick their topic that ties in with the theme, which I'm trying to remember this year. I think it's... Um, Tragedy and Triumph. Thank you. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so that's pretty broad. Yeah, that is And you could broad. pick something local, state, national, whatever you want to do. Mm -hmm. And then the kids uh, prepare a written report, uh, uh, have to give a presentation, create a Zibix, that kind of thing. And then they compete at the, the county, state. And then um, February is when they find out if they go to the state level. And then from there... Um, a few chosen end up going to the national level. So again, with more staff, we're able to work with Whitney um, and the different high schools in, again, providing assistance or support for what they're doing. One of the things in February, they need judges for, uh, you know, kind of reminds me of here in Petaluma, the decathlon that, um, not the, is that at Casa Grande High School mm. where they okay. compete, so... Anyway, it's really great, and I, I wonder if it was around. The thing I like about it is so often I hear from people, oh, when I was in high school, history was just names and dates. It was really dull. Or something like this is showing kids the broader uh, scope of history and how it's not just names and dates. It's like where this event fits in with the bigger picture, and I just think it's really exciting. Yeah, or someone conveyed to me that the history of America is the history of some dead white men. Right. You know, so, so we're working really hard to change that. <laughs> right. So uh, the need to expand the notion of history and that each person, each family has that's the genealogy part, of course, mm -hmm. of that subject, that all of us have history. In those, and it's important for each individual to put his or her place in that history of the family in the context of community and the country, the culture in which we live. So this is all, uh, from my perspective, uh, really important work. And uh, I also, you commented on uh, making uh, primary sources available. And uh, I talk about that frequently in my context at, the context at the synagogue because we have ancient texts that many people, if they know anything about them, 
They've read in secondary sources. They've read about them and what they were like. And if you actually introduce people to them and say, here, let's look at this. Let's look at this text. And what, what, what was their culture like to come up with these ideas? And what was going on in their world? Much of it is still part of human existence today because human beings haven't changed very much. Just the, the, the stuff around us in the world, the technology, etc. So this this history project. So and you know you spend a lot of time too in, in Petaluma and in our closing minutes here. Anything in Petaluma history that really strikes your fancy? That uh, my you know favorite person, favorite place in Petaluma. Uh, or the story of this building, or the story of this, any, any of those? Well, the river okay. is, is really important to me, and obviously a lot of others in Petaluma. And the, again, I, I touched upon how Petaluma, you know, some communities have a really great historic commercial district, but that's it, you know, the houses are all new. Mm-hmm. Um, or they have historic houses, but, you know, a strip mall downtown. Well, here we have at all. We have the commercial, the industrial, um, residential. Anyway, so my favorite, if, if I was to w- have no, no limits to my, my funding, I would uh, rehab the, the trestle at the, <laughs> at the turning basin. Uh-huh. I don't think people, many don't realize the significance of that resource in tying the river, the rail, commerce, and the growth of Petaluma. So, but that's a hard one. What's my favorite? No, it's a hard <laughs> you know, I, I, I understand it's a hard one, but that, that's fascinating because that is a piece of our history, and we're dealing with the whole dredging issue uh, right up front in mm-hmm. the politically right now. So uh, that river and its role in the history of this community is significant. And its role in the future. And its role in the future. What will it mean, and what are the losses that are going to be generated uh, uh, as a result of not having the river as available as it has been. That's a big thing. So in our in our closing uh, minute or so here that we have, any last minute uh, things you would like to offer to the community, invite them to? Yes. Um, so I would love, please come and see us. Mm-hmm. Um, we're having, since we just moved back into our new building, we're having an open house on January 9th from 4 to 8 which will be a great opportunity for people to meet our staff and, and see all the, the things we have to offer. So they can reach us uh, by phone, 707-308-3212, or go to sonomalibrary.org, and you'll find us on the website. Well, so, Catherine, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to be here with us today. It's been wonderful, and uh, I love history. I think it's a great part of, our, of who we are as human beings today, and we need to understand it. So thank you for being such a wonderful resource in our community and leader in this particular piece of, of our life. Thank you. Uh, during our next show uh, on January 3rd, we're going to have a conversation with Matt Brown, who is the uh, editor of the Argus Courier, and Rayut uh, Porat, who is a uh, member of B'nai Israel Jewish Center, an Israeli, to talk a little bit about her world. Thank you for joining us on KPCALP, Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM.